All right, so I got to warn you, we're going we're gonna to have about two minutes of silliness here in a second. Um, have you guys ever heard of the, the actor The Rock, Dwayne The Rock Johnson? If he was running for president, I might vote for him, seriously. I have, I, I have that guy thing where I, I like The Rock. I just think he's pretty cool. And um, there's an Oscar-worthy film that he was in a few years ago called The Rundown. Uh, and it's about the travels and travails of the character that he plays. His name is Beck. And Beck is a gambling debt collector. I know you're already enthralled uh, by, by the, the premise of this. So there's adventure, there's romance, and there's The Rock beating up a lot of people. So it's, it's a recipe for a fantastic movie. Um, and in this movie, uh, the opening scene has him walking into this bar to collect a gambling debt from an NFL quarterback, a fictitious NFL quarterback. And it's his big dance club. And the NFL quarterback's hanging in there with all of his teammates, like his offensive line, some linebackers, like these huge dudes. And Beck walks in and, and has a conversation privately with his quarterback, like, hey, I need the, you got to pay up now. And the quarterback, not real happy about it. And he's like, I'm going to need some collateral since you don't have the money. I'm going to need your ring. He's got like a championship ring on. And the quarterback throws a drink in his face and Beck walks out and uh, is in the bathroom. And uh, he doesn't really want to go back in and hurt people, but... It's The Rock, and he is going to back it, go back in. And, uh, he had, and so we're going to pick up the scene. I, as, like I said, we're going to have about a two-minute scene here of complete silliness. But just enjoy the ride, all right, of The Rock. And uh, it actually relates to what we're going to be talking about today. So here we go. <laughs> now the adrenaline's pumping. <laughs> I love that movie. I, I, it's guilty pleasure. Um, and the pacifist in me loves it as well because you do notice that he put the gun down once he had a uh, weapon. He only uses bar stools and record players and stuff to beat people up. All right, he doesn't use firearms. Um, but I like the beginning of that. He said, you got two options. There's this theme that runs throughout that movie where he offers these people that he's there to collect debts from. You got option A, this. Option B, this. You choose those two options. And it reminds me of our culture and the fact that people love to deliver boxed options to us in life. You know, expectations, sometimes there's some strings attached to them. Uh, we have a tendency to think of life as a series of choices. One, two, three, uh, and, we, and we limit those. So, you know, pros and cons lists, that's kind of, that kind of thing, where these expectations are kind of predetermined and they're presented to us to take. And people also love, like I said, to attach strings to them. Uh, they like to uh, manipulate our decision-making by attaching emotional strings to these decision-making. Uh, if you go buy a car, that's emotional manipulation 101 right there. All right, go to a car dealership. That, that is a, a perfect example of being presented with some op, like, uh, boxed options that we are forced to choose between. So it could be a job offer. could be a major purchase like a car or a house. could be relationships. could be an election, all right, where we're presented with a series of boxed options. Uh, unfortunately, this cultural habit has a tendency to serve as our guide in life, and it's, a, it's perceived pressure. It's not real in the kingdom. Um, just like we watched that movie, and we would call that silliness. Like, that's ridiculous. Option A, you give me the ring. Option B, I make you give me the ring. Like, if, if only life were that black and white and that simple and that easy to choose between. It's a lot more gray all right, it's like grayer, it's a lot more mixed than that. And Jesus, when he came on the scene, he was dealt a similar set of expectations. 
to fit into. And true to his nature, he turned down all of them. He's like, I'm not going to fit in your box. I'm not going to senior to your expectations. See, the Jewish people had a set of expectations for Jesus. Essentially, when he showed up on the scene, uh, told people who he was, they expected him to fulfill these preconceived options and expectations that they laid out for him. It was like people telling God, let us tell you what to do. And Jesus reminding them in John 10, our scripture today, uh, nope, uh uh-uh, I'm not the sheep. You don't tell me what to do. I'm the shepherd. I tell you what to do. And, you know, he basically said, your expectations are not my guide. I'm the guide. And I love that about him, that he's so, we miss that in John 10. In our 2,000 years later, we don't necessarily always understand the context of Scripture. Him saying what he said in John 10 is incredibly bold, very subversive, uh, and would would rub people the wrong way. Wait, you're not going to fit into this box that we've given you? So let's take a look at John 10. This is a, a much better version of the rock. All right. John 10, and I'm going to read verses. We're just going to zone in on verses 11 through 17. We're not going to read the whole story. So it's a little bit out of context, but I just want to focus in on a few of the, you know, we're doing this series called I Am. We're going to focus in on the I Am statement here. So John 10, it's on page 748, and we're going to read verses 11 through 17. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I laid down my life only to take it up again. So we'll stop there. But we see this repeating theme of I am the good shepherd. I don't know if you hear it or not, but I hear it when I read that. There's authority, there's clarity, and there's command. He's repeating himself like, listen carefully. Things are going to be different now. He, he establishes his authority and his power right there in that conversation or reiterates it. So this is Jesus saying, like, you have no idea how to lead or to guide or to shepherd. I do, and you need to watch how I do things. And he's saying this to the Pharisees, uh, a group of Jewish leaders who were one of many groups that presented a set of expectations to him of how to live in this Roman-occupied Jewish land and how um, change needed to be instituted. Um, let's talk about real quickly what a Middle Eastern shepherd would do. So let's, the analogy we need to understand there, the, the metaphor of shepherd. Uh, essentially what a shepherd would do, long story short, uh, he would lead his herd by day to feed and graze and then at night would find a sheepfold. Uh, a lot of the yards or a lot of the houses in that time period had front yards that were walled with one opening in the front. So he would usher his sheep into a, into a yard and pay the, the innkeeper, the owner of the house, to, to use that yard for that night. And then he would guard the gate. So the sheep would be completely protected by all the walls. And the opening, uh, he would lay down and sleep in front of that opening. So no one could get in or out, whether it was people, sheep trying to get out, uh, predators trying to get in. They literally had to go through the shepherd to get in. Sometimes it was a cave. He would lay across the opening of a cave. But the shepherd served as the gateway for anybody to come 
or go. And people had to go, or whatever it was, had to go through the shepherd to get in or out. And it's a powerful metaphor for Jesus that also carries a lot of historic importance in Jewish culture. Because Jesus, in this verse, he's referring to an Old Testament passage. You see this a lot, but we miss it. Um, because we don't, we're, a lot of us aren't from Jewish culture. We didn't live 2,000 years ago. We didn't understand the need and the craving for a, a Messiah. And so he's referring back to some prophetic utterings by this guy named Ezekiel, who has a book in the Old Testament. And we're going to take a look at that. So Ezekiel was a prophet. Um, that's, he, he lived about 600 years or so before Jesus came on the scene. And we're going to look at Ezekiel page, it's page 600. That's kind of weird, 600 years before Jesus, and it's on page 600. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 34, and just to give you some context before we start reading this, um, essentially where we're at in history is Israel's had some terrible leadership, and it has led them into ruin. Jerusalem has now been occupied by an empire called Babylon, and many many of the Jews had actually been exiled to Babylon, including Ezekiel. So Ezekiel and the Jews that were left... Were, very, were foolishly idealistic that something would happen to change these circumstances. And Ezekiel spends most of his book squashing those dreams and saying, it's not going to happen, all right? Just stop dreaming about it. But then at the, near the end of his writing uh, in this book, he talks about uh, this shepherd, this hope that is yet to come. And he gets optimistic about this true shepherd. And so this is what Jesus is referring to when he's speaking to the Pharisees who would have had the Old Testament memorized. He's saying this... I'm the guy Ezekiel was writing about, all right, 600 years ago, that's me. So Ezekiel 34, we're going to read verses 20 through 31. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd my servant David, and he will tend to them, and he will tend to them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forest in safety. I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit, and the ground will yield its crops The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who have enslaved them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety, and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the Sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Sovereign Lord. So Ezekiel's predicting David. David didn't do the job. And then Jesus is the new David. He is the new shepherd. He is the perfect shepherd. And you can see by reading that why Jewish people would expect a political or militant Messiah who would conquer and and provide physical protection but what jesus brought was spiritual heaven coming to earth he's going to look a lot different than their expectations so that's what he's referring to historically so this would have been an incredibly bold statement and would have definitely caught people's attentions in the old testament along with you know the babylonian empire there were different people groups throughout history 
that gained power and influence and, and rule in, in the Jewish, in the Israelites' lives. So there was the Egyptian empire. There, were, there was a period of judges. And there a couple books written about that in the Old Testament. There were Israelite kings like Saul and David and Solomon. Uh, there was the Assyrian empire, and there's even more. So without going into a ton of historical context about each one of those, you can sum up each one of these empires with one word, flawed. None of them were good shepherds. They had their, some of them had moments of goodness, but most of them had a lot, mostly just terrible decision-making that led people further away from God and into personal ruin. Um, all of them revealed the gap between God and humanity that needed to be filled by the true shepherd. And in the New Testament, it continues. So in Jesus, who are trying to see, there are other groups of leaders and, uh, of, uh, and people who are trying to influence change in the culture that he encounters. And so I just want to talk more specifically about each one of these. So option one, when Jesus came along, one of the more popular groups were the zealots. In fact, he invited one of the zealots, Simon, to be in his inner circle of 12. Uh, which is interesting, uh, considering who else was sitting at the table in that circle. A lot of different people. But so, the Zealots were uh, a violently subversive political group that were inspired by this group of people called the Maccabees, which historically meant a lot to the Jewish people. They believed that change could happen through force, through strength, through power, and through violent action. All right, So Roman-occupied Israel, the Zealots believed the way to, to change the culture in there was to attack and to violently subvert the authority and the establishment. Then there were the Pharisees. You probably, if you've read the New Testament, you may have heard, heard about them. They're probably the most popular or often, often mentioned group that Jesus encounters. Uh, a Pharisee is someone who believed the study of Scripture could never be wasted, and that knowledge of Scripture would lead to change. So the good people, are like, they, they get a bad rap. These are good people Jesus loved, but they, had it, they were off in their thinking. They were so committed to scripture that they lost touch with people. They were so obsessed with, with rules and obedience and law and knowledge that they forgot about the, the thing that, Jesus, that God cherishes the most, humanity. So as long, they, be, they believed basically change would come through knowledge and obedience and rule following. And that, that was their way. They kept adding on to what's called the Torah uh, the first five books of the Old Testament. They kept adding all of these rules onto it. Uh, in fact, I heard a story recently that Jews who obey the Sabbath, um, they would have their, their houses would be really closely together. And in order to obey Sabbath, they're not allowed to, to walk places on the Sabbath or to carry anything. So when they shared meals together, instead of, so they wouldn't be thought of as walking to someone else's house, they would connect their houses with a plank, like a board. So it was technically one house. It wasn't a bunch of separate houses. So they would walk down and, and wouldn't be breaking the Sabbath because their house was actually connected to a different house through that one plank. Uh, so that, that's the kind of legalism and the kind of rule following the Pharisees believed in. And then there were the Essenes, which were a highly organized Jewish sect that withdrew into the wilderness. Um, they, uh, they withdrew from Roman-occupied areas, and they thought of themselves as the real Israel. Like, they just completely got away from everything, and were like, we're just going to do our own thing and, and live properly, and we think we are the real Israel. They lived a somewhat, like, monk-like existence, just complete separation from culture. They were a very closed society, so they believed that change would come through just a complete withdrawal from cult culture and uh, from anybody who was not a part of their tribe. And then you had the Sadducees. 
They were the establishment Jewish group. They had a lot of power because they compromised with Rome. They were the political group that Jesus encountered. They believed using Roman customs and Roman laws and Roman politics could actually benefit Judaism, could actually benefit the Jewish people who were occupied. So they believed change would come through cooperating, using, and partnering with the Roman political powers. And then obviously you had the Roman leaders um, who ruled through power and empire. And Jesus had that option as well. He could have come back as a political or militant uh, shepherd. Uh, One of the key aspects of his life and ministry, though, was that he didn't join any of these tribes. He didn't adopt any of their methods. He completely ignored the options that were presented to him. In particular, the Pharisees and Sadducees expected him to comply with their options, and in John 10, he makes it clear, no, I'm not going to shepherd the way you shepherd. I'm going to shepherd a completely different way. I will lead, care for, and protect my flock the way that I see fit. So now to think about the word shepherd, when Ezekiel's referring to it and when Jesus is referring to it, yeah, the metaphor is someone who keeps sheep, but the Jewish people thought of shepherd, a synonym of that would be ruler. So anytime you see Jesus refer to himself as shepherd, think he's speaking how I'm going to rule or how I'm going to exercise my authority and my protection and my leadership. So how does this translate to us 2,000 years later? Uh, this, all of this historical context, it's tempting to think we have to choose one of the options presented to us, particularly in the season where arguments and opinions have ramped up regarding the election season. I mean, the pressure, I don't know if you feel it, but I feel it, coming from all sides when it comes to the, the po- politics of power. And as Christians, how do we respond to that? I would love to give you a series of boxed options to choose from, but that's not how Jesus works. So anybody who tells you that is not operating with the rhythm and the rule of our shepherd. So I'm not going to do that. Uh, but what I am going to tell you is to consider choosing an alternative path the way that he did. He doesn't give us specific exact instructions on how to respond, but he does give us a way, uh, a way of life to imitate. And I believe in that way. I believe in following our shepherd. I believe he's one that we can trust and he knows how to operate in the face of cultural pressure. I think he knows something about that. So I like the way he does stuff. So we follow the path of our good shepherd whose politics are literally never instituted through power, force, manipulation, or coercion. Jesus down, turned down the pleas and the hopes for a militant and political shepherd. So the question I guess we could ask is, should I, I mean, one question is, should I vote? Since everybody's telling me to and giving me these different options of voting. Vote, don't vote, I don't care. All right, Jesus isn't involved in it. Uh, he doesn't give us any specific instructions about it. He didn't get in, involved in, in, politi- in, in those types of politics. He, com- he started a completely new political kingdom that operated in a completely different way. Um, so I got everybody and their brother telling me how to vote, who to vote for, what my options are. So I'm automatically going to reject that because it's just my personality. All right? I, I don't like being told what to do. Anybody with me? I just don't like that. All right, if someone tells me I need to do something because everybody else is doing it, I'm automatically not going to do it. Carrie knows that if she wants me to go along with something, she needs to tell me no one's doing it. Then I'm interested. I'm in. I'm like, oh, tell me about this. All right, I'm, I'm in for crazy ideas. Uh, I'm not in for ideas where the crowd is telling me what I need to do. Because when I see what the crowd does in Scripture, the crowd is always wrong in Scripture. Anytime someone's chanting or pressuring or trying to manipulate emotions, they're always wrong. 
And that tells me something. So I'm always suspicious of, of options, of, of boxes that people try to put stuff in, particularly when it comes to our faith. Um, so I, I, I don't know what your option is. Choose, vote, don't vote. Um, I, I decided that I was going to give my vote away this year. Uh, so I gave my vote to an immigrant who's not allowed to vote in our country. And I just filled out my ballot for who that person wants to vote for, and I'm turning it in. Because uh, that, that's kind of like my version of being subversive. Of like, you've given me these options, I'm going to choose a different one. Uh, I don't know if that's what you want to do, or if you think that's stupid, that's fine. It's silly. But that's, what I, that's one way I, I decided to respond in this election season. But one thing we can't do is get caught up in it. Because it's just like Jesus is like, I'm not going to get caught up in the box that you want to put me in. And Christians, we operate by a different set of politics, and we use different methods. And we're not going to... Um, in, I just don't believe we should engage in the manner that everybody else engages in. I think we should always consider the alternative way. So now, this isn't a political sermon, so let's move on to the more important part of what does Jesus as our guide, our shepherd, our ruler look like? All right? Uh, the, the, the thing that he mentions in John 10 is, I lay, he kept saying, I lay down my life. I lay down my life. He lives a cruciform existence. And we see him, this is a, a theme throughout his life, and it ends this way, is that he gives up his life, his comfort, his time uh, for other people. That, that's just his MO, and that's the way he operates. So we have a ruler who stands between us and evil. So if you think of, uh, read the story where Jesus gets arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. You'll notice that he comes to the forefront. Right? He separates his disciples who are with him from the Roman soldiers who are trying to arrest him. Right? He, he does a very shepherding thing, like, get behind me. All right? They're here for me. They're going to take me. They're not taking you. And they leave them. The disciples are left in the garden as Jesus goes to his death. He lays down his life. He serves as the gate, the blockade between good and evil, between his sheep and the predator. So that's one uh, example of that. And then you think of the cross, laid down his life for all of humanity. He, he, he served as the shepherd between uh, evil and good. He served as the gateway and the bridge. So we see this theme playing throughout all of his life and his death, and we follow a shepherd who gives his life away on our behalf for our protection and for our benefit. Every other politician in history has used human beings. We follow one who died for them. It's a radically different political kingdom that we're a part of. So side note, Jesus as ruling shepherd, the, another beautiful thing about following him is he doesn't force us to do it. It's a choice. It's an option. His love is unconditional and we can choose to receive the gift or reject it. And, and by the way, I think when we think of like the shepherd protecting from good and, and, or from uh, evil and from good uh, and, and serving as the, the, the gateway, it's not always as black and white as we've seen because Satan, as it seems, Satan is very brilliant. Evil doesn't usually repulse us. All right, we can all point at stuff that we think is evil. Like there's a collective, like everybody believes like child abuse, that's evil. Like, that, that's low-hanging fruit when it comes to naming evil. But most of the time, <clears throat> I think there's gray area because gen, generally we're attracted to some sort of evil, right? Satan knows what tempts us individually. He's brilliant. So I'm not going to go through and list all these sins, but there are ethics to our faith. There are boundaries to the sheepfold that Jesus has 
brought in. So if you want to know what the, the ethics of our faith are, you, you could read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You could read Paul's letters to the churches he started because basically his letters are, here's how, where you've crossed, you've left the sheepfold. Here are the mistakes you've made in the ethics of Christianity. And he's correcting them in a gentle but firm way. Like, no, stay where you're protected. Stay where you're going to be, you know, where you're going to flourish and grow and more sheep can come in. So Paul's letters remind us of the ethics of our faith. There is that involved. So his motivation, though, isn't judgment of calling out what we're doing wrong. It's shepherding. It's protecting the flock. It's keeping us where we're going to grow and, and flourish and, and others can, can join in. So now, Jesus the shepherd. Consider that on a personal level. When he says, I'm your shepherd, he's our guide. So what's guiding you more than him right now? If you, I, I you personalize this. When he's speaking to the Pharisees, inject yourself into that story. If you're standing there listening to that and he's saying, I'm the good shepherd, Think about what is guiding you more than him right now. What's shepherding your life? What's influencing your life more than him? Is it politics? Is it sexuality? Uh, a relationship? Work? Money? None of those are inherently evil unless they replace him. And we put that, one of those things above him as our shepherd. So some of us need to remember who our true guide is and, who, and his ethics, and, or in the ethics of our faith. And we follow a shepherd and allow his ethics to serve us as our protection. And this is when we flourish as his created and cherished beings, when we follow his way and live within his sheepfold. <clears throat> now think about, outside of yourself, who needs you to shepherd them? Like, who needs an advocate? Who needs a friend? Who needs an encouraging word? a gift, a hug, a note, a coffee date or meeting, a lunch meeting, some time together. What would, and, and even think about what would be good news to them? What would feel like advocacy to them? What would feel like love to them and protection right now? And how can you help provide that? Because that is also part of our faith. We have an opportunity to shepherd like Jesus shepherded, to be that kind of person because he's given us his Holy Spirit to do that. And then the last thing is, <clears throat> are you hanging out with other sheep? All right, the, the whole the flock thing, that's more than one. If you think you can do Christianity on your own, you're wrong. All right, it is a communal faith. Where two or three are gathered, there he is also. That's what he says. So we, we must be together, and we want more to join the flock. So if you aren't regularly breaking bread, I, I can say this, and it, it may sound a little blunt, but it's not meant to be. It's just truth. If you're not regularly breaking bread with other Restore Church members, the, you're, you're, the clock for you here is ticking. You will, at some point, Sunday morning isn't just going to be enough for you. It's probably not now. But we, we have a tendency in our individualistic or consumeristic culture to reject community or to make excuses. We, we view community as a commodity. Like, ah, it's not, I don't really need that. It's like we're going into a store and we're like, uh, yeah, I like, I like singing or I like talking about the Bible. Community, eh. I, I could do without that. I don't, I don't want to try. I don't have time. I don't have anybody. I, I don't live close enough. We could list a lot of excuses as to why we don't need biblical community. But the good shepherd says we do. And that's an important part of our faith is to be with one another, to break bread, to share drinks, to pray, to celebrate what's God, what God is doing. And our expression of that in Restore Church is missional community. And we do it twice a month. So if you have not gotten... 
um, if you've not made the attempt for biblical community in our church, uh, I say this again, like the shepherd would say, not a judgment, but an invitation, like come be part of the flock. Come be part of a place where we think that Christ is at the center and you will flourish and you will grow and you will, you will um, experience life in a new way and you will have people who you will serve one another. It's a beautiful thing to be part of biblical community and it takes time. All right? It's not like you show up one time at a community gathering, especially if you're an introvert. <laughs> it takes some time to connect with people relationally. So remember that patience is part of the process and part of the journey. But I do hope that you will join our community and that you will be a part of this flock. And I hope we will in, invite more. I, I feel like that's an area we can improve on, is to be more invitational, all right? To, to be more uh, invitational, whether it's a Sunday morning or, or, or living in biblical community, invite people into that. Risk rejection, all right? It, 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 you can handle it. We've all been rejected at some point in our life. For a job by someone we are interested in relationally, it's happened, and it will continue to happen. Keep taking the risk, all right? Because we follow a shepherd who lays down his life, and we imitate that. We are, as Christians, we are okay with rejection. That's just part of the journey uh, of living and imitating Jesus. So let's pray, and uh, we're going to close with one more song as a reminder that we have one, one true shepherd, that he's good, that he's protective, and that he loves us unconditionally. So let's pray together.